You're listening to Community Now on Hope FM with Keith Jones Bookshop, serving the community for over 50 years. Visit keithjones.co.uk. Well, my very special guest, as I said at the top of the programme, is Mark Austin. Now, Mark and I go uh, way back. Uh, have you kind of the years, Mark, that we go back? I was I was just thinking about that. It's 30 plus, isn't it? No, it's just under 30 years, actually. Mm. Yeah. 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 But, hey, who's uh, counting? Of course, uh, when I was director of the YMCA, you, you, you were there yeah. and, and whatever. You're a man of faith, and I guess that the, the one thing that we both share and are passionate about is, is the sharing of the good news of the gospel. You know, you're an evangelist. Uh, and, uh, well, some say, yeah. And you, Well, you've, you, you have got a passion. I have a in, passion, in, yeah. In that area. But having said that, of course, that, that life has had its ups and downs and its bumps. Now, hopefully during the, the programme today, if you're going through some bad times you know if you maybe you've been a christian for a while and and things have gone a bit pear-shaped then you're going to be encouraged by this program because there's there's no believer really that doesn't hit uh, a bit of a bump in the road and of course the devil sees to it that, that we all do <laughs> the main thing about it is that when we hit those bumps and those challenges in life that surely come it's hard we deal with it now mark has had a few bumps in the road, haven't you? <laughs> but you're still standing, mate. Well, yeah, thanks be to the Lord. Uh, just want to say, Blair, thank you. It's a real privilege for you to ask me on. <laughs> thanks, Mark. Well, let's begin with your sort of journey of faith, because, I mean, obviously uh, you weren't born uh, you know, into, into a Christian background and so on. Traditionally, my mum, I think she went to... Um, Spurgeon's Tabernacle with her grandparents way back. She's 96 now and uh, loves the Lord. Uh, But in those days, it was more, she said, she was really intrigued by all the the hymns and, and I suppose the theology in the hymns. And she still remembers them word for word today, which is amazing. Well, of course, all those great hymns uh, then and now really reflected theology, didn't it? It was the way in which people learned the Bible and learned about Christian things. More so, perhaps, I don't know, but mum was always drawn to the to the music of the, you know, six she was, she was six years old, and that that sort of installed something in her, which... Unfortunately, it all kind of went into the background a bit as five children. I'm one of five. The second. So, did your mum. Has she had the medal yet? <laughs> no, but we've got a joke because um, I said to mum a few weeks ago, I said, you know, when you make it to 100, you've got to send a telegram to the Queen because he's actually the same age as the Queen. So, I don't suppose she'll get many telegrams going the other way. <laughs> so. Well, what you have to do is you you need to let the people in Buckingham Palace know on yeah. behalf of your mum, and yeah. then the Queen will. We've Send got, the telegram. It's got four years to go, so we'll see how that goes. Absolutely. So what, what was those early years like with you with, with five Well, it's you know, funny. We, we're just moving house. And you know when you think systematically, what are we going to do? Well, we better tackle the loft. So Julie and I tackled the loft. And in the loft were my primary school reports. <laughs> <laughs> well, did it make good reading, Mark? That's well, the thing. it's interesting. I don't know what that phrase is. I can't quote it verbatim, you know, where it says, you know, give me the child at seven and I'll give you the man. Um, is that right? I don't yeah, know. that's oh, right. Blair's good at that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I looked at the report and uh, my best subjects were English, music, scripture. And uh, the music uh, teacher was named Spinster, lovely little spinster, about four foot nine, fierce lady from uh, Southern Ireland (laughs) (laughs) who loved her music. And uh, she knew that I had a kind of way about me that was rather humorous. So even on the report, she said something like, excuse the accent, she said something like, I think Mark will do really well because he's got a cracking sense of humour. Oh, well, there you are. Yeah, so it stood me in good stead. So scripture, music, still very much in my life. And English, I I, uh, like language, I like words. So, um, yeah, that was it. So at 10 years old, I think it was about 10, um, I really uh, was taken by the song that we're going to play soon. Um, It was was just because it was so jolly, and uh, it was so jolly that actually when Julie and I got married, we had it at our wedding. It was the first piece of music that we that we uh, had on the wedding. And, uh, yeah, it just reminds me of uh, 
school assemblies and that routine that kind of gets that security from God's word and God's songs. So. Well, shall we play the song uh, and then people yeah. will know what we're talking about? I used to sing this song uh, oh, right. myself when I was a kid, you know. And it is actually one of those songs that people love to sing even now, don't they? Yeah, I, I don't know where its origin is. I, look, I tried to trace it on the internet, but I think it's one of the, it's taken from a traditional American gospel song or something. Well, anyway, you, um, when I start to play this song, you'll, you'll recognise it, many of you. That's the Cedar Mount kids there singing the old classic <laughs> Give Me Oil in My Lamp, Keep Me Burning. I can just imagine you and Julie dancing up the aisle to that, you know, when you got married. Well, <laughs> we didn't do that, but what I just thought then, isn't it funny how, you know, your mind takes you back and there's you opposite me doing all the actions and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I can't, uh, you, it just brings a smile to your face, doesn't it? Well, in, in the Presbyterian Church where I was brought up in, in, in Ireland, we had a thing called kindergarten, you know, uh-huh. and uh, we used to sing all these old choruses, you know, and uh, <clears throat> climb, climb up sunshine mountain, faces all aglow, all those, all those old <laughs> songs. You know. But the funny thing is <clears throat> that here we both are, you know, in the, in our seventies, yeah. uh, and and we remember these these songs yeah. because they're with you all of your all life, all of your life. Yeah. So going back then to you know to to those early years for you, and, yeah. and obviously your mom was a woman of, of of faith, and she did she did reflect and uh, on those those hymns that you talked about. How how did your journey with faith, and how was that impacted? Were you impacted by your mom? Um, it was peculiar, really. I mean, we did grow up with the basic Christian principles. So you knew there was something there? I was always, I I was one of the kids that couldn't sleep and I'd look out at the heavens and think, my goodness gracious, what's that all about, you know? So I was very kind of questioning from a very early age. Um, But the Miss O'Leary that I referred to, she saw that I had a bit of an ear for music, so she put me in for a scholarship at Eton College and at 10 years old, I won a scholarship to go to Eton College Choir School. And I was there as a choir boy for three years. So did you sing very highly? Yeah, I, well, unfortunately, since my voice broken, it's not <laughs> it's not really much. But uh, in those days, yeah, I, I was, um, I think I got in just because they said I had a good ear. But um, we had to do a, an aptitude test as well. But yeah, um, thanks to Miss O'Leary. I got some uh, musical education. So you became a choir boy. Yeah, and what I learned there was um, we it wasn't allowed really, but we occasionally made friends with uh, the boys in Eton College, as you would really, and uh, they, well, they were no different from us. You know, you get this kind of them and us thing in the demographic where you yeah. think, oh well, all the aristocratic kids are there and princes of African countries and all that sort of thing. Prime ministers, I, Yeah. Our well, future let's, prime ministers. Let's not go there. <laughs> but, but as far as I was concerned, what I learned was, even though that in my head I had this probably almost like a inverted snobbery, really, but once you got to know the chaps, they were just the same as we are. And uh, I was from an ordinary lower-middle-class family, but my father was uh, a very intelligent man, but self-educated and did an, a mighty job really bringing up five children at the same time and did he did he have a form of faith no i never really got to the actually where he stood but um i hope in his latter he's been uh, dead now 10 years um i hope that he i mean i did get a chance to share with him a bit about my faith and he knew because there was a radical change in my life um that something had gone on uh, so yeah, so at, um, as a child, I went to the choir school. But what that did again was peculiar because it seemed like it was all structured around ritual and ceremony, and nothing really was going in. I think sometimes my heart was touched by some of the beautiful bits of music that we used to sing, you know, Handel's Messiah and all that. But I, um, yeah, I kind of felt out of place really, and I think it was after choir school i went to slough grammar school and everything fell apart then 
So, uh, you know, <laughs> when I mean, I won't go into the details, but they expelled me. <laughs> so you were a very naughty boy. <laughs> well, I think really it was just a peculiar because I did my I had to do my 13 plus because at the choir school, they kick you out when your voice breaks. Mm -hmm. So I got into the slow grammar and the adjustment was difficult for me. And I didn't kind of really gel with the uh, with it. And it was difficult because, you know, children want to be accepted. Well, as my mother often says to me, what happened to your Etonian accent? You know, yeah. she, she, think, she thought that I'd carry on to it. But, of course, I wanted to be accepted by the guys from Slough. So did you talk posh then? You know what I mean? Well, no. Um, well, better than I do now. <laughs> but it's that acceptance thing, isn't it? Eaton College, people yeah. all around you are speaking really well. Of course. And then I go to Slough Grammar School which is like an overlap from London, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was that kind of... Opposite uh, ends of the scale. Well, exactly, but, I mean, good school, but it, I wanted to be accepted, so no sooner was I there for, I don't know, three or four weeks than the Etonian bit went. And um, I suppose it's the acceptance thing, isn't it? Although it's interesting, isn't it, because the formation of character, you know, um, as we as we go through, you know, our, our young years are into our teens yeah, and so on. Yeah. I mean, I mean, even even rebellion in a way does help to form character and a preparation actually for for the future. You know, I think that one of the sad things is that many times uh, people are put down, you know, because because of the way they express themselves and so on did you have that did you did you have a, a, a another teacher like that lovely Irish music teacher who looked at you and saw something different no they couldn't they couldn't stand me really I spent most of the time in the corridor so what did that do <laughs> what did that do to you as a person then? well I it's combined with two or three things I had a serious accident when I was about 15 where I had a hairline fracture the front of my skull and I was not myself unconscious and uh it affected me badly. Now, nowadays, I would imagine that uh, those who know better would say, oh, well, Mark's bruised his brain. <laughs> Give him a break. But I was back at school in about three weeks, and I was sitting at the back of the class, and I didn't understand what was going Why do I not understand what they're talking about? And I think the after effect of that meant that I went on the defensive. So when I didn't actually manage to catch up, I'd become the, the class clown. So, of course, that's much to the chagrin of most of the teachers there when I'm not taking things too seriously. Uh, and that kind of developed into more of a rebellion, as in the 60s we grew up with all the sort of music that was going on there, very expansive and postmodern in its mm. anti-establishment sort of attitude. But that's not uncommon, isn't it? Because there's a lot of people who take the role of client, yeah. uh, and in a way they can be popular. Mm. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with, with humour. There's nothing wrong. But of course, what it can also do, and which isn't helpful, is it can cover up a great deal of inward pain and and the real you, if you like. Did did you feel is it? I mean, in one sense, to your mates and so on, you're you're this Mark, the fun guy. Well. No, because, I mean, I think some of the um, the damage, the emotional damage and all that sort of thing, which I won't go into, it, it leaves scars, of course. But I think for me, it was more a case of, again, wanting to belong. So, of course, I became a mod in the 60s and, uh, you know, down to Brighton with the boys and all that sort of thing and dressing up with my herringbone, some of the guys out there my age, herringbone trousers, hush puppies... Uh, leather jackets no leather coat I had a blue leather coat I was very proud of that and uh, that sort of whole belonging of that tribe and it um, developed my music as well because we had a band my favourite band at the time was The Who and so we had a band and we were called The Why Not <laughs> <laughs> so why not uh, yeah. now, you had another your next choice of music is something uh, a wee bit, bit different out of that genre The Birds yeah why this one? Well, again, these things arrest you, don't they, as you're growing up. If you're in that um, era where a lot of the music was anti-establishment and anti the things which were established, the values, say, or, you know, in those days when I was a child, I remember um, if people were asked what religion were you, you know, in the hospital or whatever, oh, C of E, I'm C of E. 
which has completely changed now. But in the 60s, that rebellion was this kind of, hey, man, you know, don't tell me what to do. You've just gone through two world wars. What do you know? Mm-hmm. And let's be free. Of course, we didn't understand. But looking back, of course, everything that we were calling freedom was actually imprisoning us, sex, drugs and rock and roll, which unfortunately were the choices that I made. And um, that kind of got me into quite a lot of problems. Yeah. Yeah. So shall we listen to the birds? Yeah. The reason I chose it was because it, it arrested me in all of this the who and can't explain and my generation here was this uh, american um group who i think there were two weren't there you know you know better than me they were the birds in england b-i-r-d-s and these ones b-y-r-d-s when i heard it the words made me really think what's going on with well it's this? a song that gets you to stop in your tracks doesn't it yeah because we know it's based on the words from ecclesiastes but i mean what what are we thinking about in the middle of the 60s about ecclesiastes it arrested me community now my very special guest is mark austin he's been very patient uh so he had a chance to to water his throat there for a moment or two ago uh now we, we we've left you in a very rebellious stage you know in in the sense that you were with the you, you'd had the issues at school and i i suppose rebellion is not a word because it's misunderstood very much as, as the word that comes to mind but of course, then that took you into into a mindset, into the into the mods, where uh, drugs and rock and roll and music again impacted your life, didn't it? Yeah, and the peculiar things that you don't know um, actually are going on, but that sort of rebellion takes you in dark places because you think, you know, like I said before about freedom. So, but freedom isn't found in drugs and it's not found in all the other things that uh, was on offer. But also peer pressure is a big thing, isn't it? Because, you, because you know, if everybody else is doing it, like you, you get mod, we had mods and rockers at yeah. that era, didn't we? Yeah. But because everybody's into that. Yeah. So not to be into it, you stand out like a, th- a sore thumb. But also I was angry and I didn't really understand where then where the anger was coming from, but... I was a very angry young man, really. And is that because you think you you were misunderstood that you? Well, possibly. I mean, since I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I was out of education since I was uh, since I was expelled from Slough Grammar School at sixteen, and basically didn't do any education really until I went to Moorlands to to do a degree. And when I was forty five years old, you know, and for me, it was a giant leap to go back into the world of academia. I hadn't, hadn't got a clue even how to write an essay, you know. But for me then, it was a different... Um, well, I was motivated differently, of course. But the realisation that actually how little we know and looking back when you're young... I mean, youth is wasted on the young. And the, um, you know, I've got the... Uh, I've been fortunate to be on the earth now for seven decades, so um, actually the Lord can take me whenever he likes, really, because <laughs> every day's a day of grace after 70, and it? Blah. So from my, my perspective, looking at each decade, it helps me in the framework to look at where I was, how I was feeling, where I thought I was going. And there was definitely always that nagging thing, this must be more to life than this. Unfortunately, I got myself into big trouble and uh, then I made a girl pregnant and then we got married very young. And, of course, it was pretty well doomed from the start because we were so young and hadn't grown up ourselves, really. So my 20s, after a divorce, uh, I was... um, And and some children. And some children. Quite a lot of children, actually. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I have got a lot of children but i'd sooner i mean i just mention them now that they're i was with campbell actually who's now 39 is he gosh yeah um he's my second son and we were in um he was working in the city and i went up to see him after work and we they always met in the same pub with the i suppose it's an out-of-date word but the yuppies that were there then and his immediate boss who was about 
I don't know, at the time, 30-ish, said to me, oh, so, Mr. Austin, you've got lots of children. And I said, yeah, I have. And Campbell was sitting next to me. He <laughs> said, so, um, which one's your favourite? Oh, no. <laughs> and I said, well, the Campbell, one... Campbell, obviously. <laughs> well, no, I said, the one that I'm with at the time. So from my perspective... That's a good answer. Well, it's true, isn't it? Because um, as a father, you know you, you can't have a favourite, but they've all, they're all unique beings and bring a different colour into your life with their varying personalities, strengths mm-hmm. and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And uh, having children has been great for me, particularly as I've got older, grandchildren. You know, I've even got a great-grandson now. So you've got five children? Yeah, five children. And how many grandchildren so far? I've got four grandchildren, and I've got one great-grandson. There you go. Theo. So there we are. Fantastic. Yeah, great. So really, I think the 20s, that decade, was searching. There's much... There's more to life than this. I threw myself into work. Should we play a bit of uh, of uh, Mr. Rafferty? Oh, right. Yeah, well, Jerry Rafferty, if you look at the word, it's a very poignant song. It's, it's haunting, in a way. Some of the words I could relate to in my 20s, because he's saying things like, oh, I'm just a rolling stone. You know it won't settle down. And his kind of wayward attitude in the... And I love, I just love the sax in this. It's just a really... And it takes back me back, 1978, was it? It was number one. It was a really cracking song, I love it. You're listening to Community Now on Hope FM with Keith Jones Bookshop, serving the community for over 50 years. Visit keithjones.co.uk. Well, my very special guest today, as you've been hearing, is Mark Austin, and we've been going through uh, his life. And and I know know it sounds a bit strange, uh, but I mean, obviously, it's it's been very much a bumpy road. It's a journey which took you to some pretty dark places, uh, Mark. But I suppose that one of the things, and in fact there's no suppose about it, that it's interesting, isn't it, that, that we have a God who brings us out of darkness and gives us hope in a future. And I know that you have that. But people maybe listening to the programme this far will think, well, my goodness, he's a bit of a mess, that fellow. Yeah. But, the, but of course the truth is we're all a bit of a mess, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, uh, I was fortunate because there were people who believed in me, even though I really didn't believe myself. It was, it, to me, it was all, particularly with humour, I mean, I played the guitar, so in the 20s, what would happen would be, all right, let's get together. So I worked hard, but I played hard. So I'd get the invites, I'll oh, come along to the party or whatever, and I had to be the centre of attention with my guitar. Did you have a band in those days? I've been in, in and out of bands all through my 20s, but basically what I meant from a personal point of view was I'd be invited to kind of jolly up a party. And after a little while, I got a bit cynical about that. And I thought, well, you know, why, why have you invited me? And never really believed that they invited me because they didn't know me. They never, never thought about the serious side of me. I was still working out the differences between religion and the relationship with God. I didn't, I didn't get it. I just saw religion as being dried out. And, uh, of course, Eton College was high church, so we'd have the uh, Nunc Dimittis and the Magnificat every day. And uh, um, I think it was the Nisan Creed that we would say every day. And it was very that sort of structured and felt safe but not real it was ritual to me i just didn't kind of get it and that historic thing in my very being if you like when i got a bit old in the, my 20s and i was really searching i looked into buddhism and i i um, went to the G- jesus christ church of latter-day saints and did a bible study with the jehovah's witnesses for a year so there's a real searching going on there yeah, I definitely was disgruntled. I thought there's more to life than this. So threw myself into work, started making some money. But unfortunately, when you start making a little bit of money, you can feed your habits. And that was a very unhealthy time. I mean, art, art, artists, you know, the art, the artist streak in you, the, the, uh, it wasn't just about music, of course. It was about design because you, you very much were, were, were gifted in that area of doing sign, you know, making signs and using art. And Dean, of course, Julie is, is still yeah, very much into her art, isn't yeah. your, your wife? One of the things we had very much in common, but um, at 16, I 
didn't really know what to do. I went home having been expelled. My father said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm just reading the paper. He said, no, you're not. Get out there and don't come back until you get a job. <laughs> they used to have the um, youth employment office, I think. Yes. Um, and I went down there and the lady said to me, um, what are you good at? And I went, well, not a lot, really. Art, I kind of like art, like music. She said, have you ever thought of being a sign writer? <clears throat> I said, I don't even know what a sign writer is. So, well, there's an interview tomorrow. Do you want to go to it? So I suited and fluted and went down. I got this job as an apprentice sign writer, which I did. And that was the basis of how basically I've earned most of my living in life. And, I'm, of course, it appealed to that artistic part of you, yeah, didn't well, it? Yeah, well, in those days, it was different, of course. Now everything's vinyl. In those days, you actually sign-wrote signs. You had to do it by hand, stick, palette, paint. You know, so it was a completely different... It was, it was an art form to me. And I lived in Windsor in Berkshire at the time, and you could go round Windsor and look at the various signs, ones that you may have done and ones that others have done, and see if you could guess which sign writer did it. Because <laughs> <You know, laughs> everybody's got their little unique style, you know. But, yeah, it's developed, and in the 20s it developed more. Then I went into exhibition graphics. I was self-employed, made quite a decent amount of money. But, as I say, it distracted me from... I suppose the, the trouble is, that, and, and I think a lot of people could identify to this, if you're angry and you're unhappy about life or there seems to be something missing, then you look for anaesthetics in order to be able to cope with life. So, of course, I was drinking too much and taking drugs and, and all sorts of other things. So it, didn't, it took me completely away from the reality of what I was trying to find, the because we're all seekers of the truth, aren't we? And, you know, every person on this earth must ask themselves the same questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Um, what is truth? And where am I going? And those questions were really nagging me in my 20s. And the only way I sort of be able to cope with life at the time was... Uh, was the anaesthetics. And I think, you know, the other thing, because of the head injury, it exacerbated... Cause, oh, sorry, in my primary school report, spelling, terrible. <laughs> but, of course, they didn't know about dyslexia or anything. I think that whatever that was, hmm. was exacerbated by the accident, the head injury. And then when I got to Moreland's, I forgot to tell you that before, to start doing some academic work, they said, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> so they, oh, test, they tested me. They didn't say that. They not, find, that's yeah. not verbatim. No, they were very kind. But, but they do that with all the students at Morelands, don't they? They do. And I, I never heard of it, but they, they came to the conclusion that I was dyslexic. But whatever that mean, meant to me as a child meant that, oh, I'm thick, so I've got to cover it up. That's a, another reason why perhaps I played the fool, you know. These sort of things happen. And in the 20s, I, I just thought, well, I'm kind of blagging it, really. And so far, there's been so many negative influences on your life, yeah. the people that you've mixed with. Was there, was there, were there any, I mean, I'm thinking about that Irish teacher. That was the yeah. only positive influence, I think, that you, you've mentioned, apart from your in mom. S in schooling, yeah, I, I think after school, though, Oh, beautiful. I just think it reminded me. Come on, I'm 71 now. So back when I was an apprentice signer, there was this lovely, lovely foreman there. And he was a little Jewish fellow from the east end of London. His name was Len Pardon. And I just loved him as a father figure. And then he had that whole fascination about the Hebrew nation. And I asked him about bar mitzvahs and everything that kind of... He would have just known automatically. His name was Len Pardon. His father's name was Len Pardon. And his grandfather's name was Len Pardon. Pardon. And they'd all been sign writers. <laughs> so then he would take me back about how they would mix their own paints. And that was archaic to me. You know, but you had to actually mix your paints before. Yeah. And he was, he'd talk about lapis lazuli and all of these different powders that they'd, uh, that they'd put with sometimes linseed oil and white spirit. In those days, what was it called? Terps. It was turpentine. So the smells around the sign company were absolutely lovely. It, it, it brought a sort of security to me. But in the 20s, it went slowly, slowly, slowly with the exhibition industry more into uh, computer lettering and in, initially 
individual vinyl lettering. So gradually it was already changing the nature of the business. As a lot of things, of course, did, you know, because technology has brought massive changes, not, of course, always for the best. Well, I think in the sign industry it's difficult because I romantically thought, well, this is an art form. But it's died. I mean, I'm the last generation of sign writers. There are some out there who've taken it on. Perhaps a son has taken on his dad's business and carries on the writing. But it's not commercially viable. Nobody, like, nobody wants to pay any more for us to do gold leaf on glass lettering and on glass, you know, or even transfer gold. A vinyl letter, probably to the layman, would look the same. A reverse gold vinyl letter on a solicitor's glass looks the same to to them as if we were there doing it in Goldie. The difference is the luster and how long it lasts. So, you know, you can see gold leaf. I could probably go back to Windsor and find bits of gold leaf that I must have done, you know, all that time. Oh, years and years. Well, because people keep, why should you change? Now, we've still got you on the searching phase. Yeah. uh, And and then, of course... uh, the one love, Bob Marley. Oh, right. Uh, and the Whalers came along. Yeah, that was in my. Th- yeah, that was more in my thirties then. Yeah. Yeah, but of course, all of this was a bit of a progression, wasn't it? The, 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 yeah. And I guess it was a progression in terms of your searching and 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 the development of a faith, yeah. a, re- a development of a reaching out. Yeah. Now you've chosen one love. Um, why? Why this one? Well, love of music. I have really eclectic taste, so I love reggae. Incidentally, I won't tell you that yet. I'll tell you later about the reggae band. But um, reggae fascinated me. And the roots of it, um, going way back to Calypso and how that all developed, it was really fascinating to me. So as a love of music and something slightly different. And the words are very simple, very simple. And in the hubbub of working hard and playing hard, and again, it was something that arrested me. I know it sounds strange, but that, I think, is like you were saying, how much effect music can have on us in our lives. And it did. I was just thinking, he's making these nice noises with a different rhythm. But how simple are the words? And they're, and they're real words, you know, one love. Well, we're going to listen to it. So. Absolutely. Let's do that now. Yeah, thanks. Of course, that's uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers, uh, one love. And of course, people get ready. Well, Mark's tale thus far hasn't been that encouraging <laughs> because uh, you've taken us and in your life you've been to some dark places, but actually uh, a lot of searching going on. And I guess that so many of us could replicate, you know, maybe in a slightly different way, but the sorts of things that you've gone through, you know, you've got a, a church that was uh, in a way not relevant, but you've seen it as being uh, as being religious uh, or no power within it, very traditional and so on. But everything was to change uh, because now you're not only a Christian, but you're a passionate Christian. Uh, you've been to Bible college, you've been a pastor uh, in Lanzarote for nine years, did you say? Uh, yeah, we were there initially when we first became Christians, Julie and I, for a year and a half or so, nearly two years. When we uh, got married, we immediately, that was our honeymoon going yeah. down there, and we stayed there for a, a while. You married somebody who was very heavily into New Age philosophy? Well, initially, Julie was very much into New Age, and whilst I was still searching, she and I started a relationship i um had a a business then uh and in the 80s yuppiesville bmws and all of that stuff um again it was only an excuse really because you you can when you prosper then what do you do you just supply yourself with the anesthetics and everything even more because you've got the money to do it and i think also some of the damage if you like I'd only share in this because I think people listening need to hear it. I wanted my approval from my parents. I wanted, I sought after it all the time. You know, as soon as I got my first 
bit nice car I wanted to tell my mum see how well I've done yeah yes yeah, as soon as I got my first factory come come look what I've got mum and so on and so forth so to achieve was important to me and that's a good thing it's good to have ambition but when it becomes all-consuming then it, it really can be quite destructive so you looking for what the world was telling me was success in inverted commas one two years later you know where the apostle paul says you know a successful man is a man who's content in all circumstances well i was definitely wasn't content and uh, i had it all i had a lovely house in brockenhurst and i drove a ferrari i went to new york on concord i did it all that in the inverted commas success thing but for me, still searching, the more money I seem to make, the more unhappy I got. <laughs> Which is a bit weird, isn't it? So eventually, Julie and I, like you say, Julie came into my life. Uh, she came and worked for me in my business, actually. And we uh, became an item. And uh, she was searching, too. Very new age, though, at that time. And I was having done all the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, read books about Buddhism and everything. I, the New Age certainly didn't appeal to me at all. So we kind of started rubbing edges from each other. And, and eventually, um, my GP in Brockenhurst, a lovely guy, I think you may have known him, Dr. Derek Brown, who did a lot of social work and community work. Mm. One day uh, before I became a Christian, I was living in Brock, and he came and knocked on the door. And he said, uh, good afternoon, we are actually collecting money for the village hall in Brockenhurst. Would you like to uh, participate in some way? Well, I actually approached the front doors on a Saturday. I remember we had friends around. I had a gin and tonic in one hand and a, and a cigarette probably in the other and probably a bit tipsy. And I went, oh, yeah, and how are you going to do that? He said, well, we're, London, we're going to run the New York Marathon. I said, yeah, I'll put me down for that. I'll do that. <laughs> so all the bravado and everything, Derek said this to me and off he went and uh, my wife at that time said um, who is that I said I was a local GP he's collecting money for the new village hall in Brockenhurst and he's going to run the New York Marathon and I'm going to do it with him and everybody in the room just went yeah sure he is anyway that's kind of a challenge that I can't turn down so I stopped smoking I stopped drinking trained and I went and did the New York Marathon with him and that became a really good friendship he was a Christian and I didn't know that uh, we moved then in Brockenest to this lovely house, which was in the same road as this Christian family. My doctor, my GP, Derek Brown, loved him to bits. He and Esther had a great uh, influence on me. You know, I'd drive past in these flash cars and I'd think, what is it that they've got that I haven't got? The world tells me I've got everything, but what is going on there? So I'd drop off big Arga in the kitchen. She'd uh, make me a cup of tea and a bit of cake and talk. And she'd listen, and Derek would listen. Anyway, they led us to Above Bar Church. In Southampton? Yeah, well, what I liked about that, two things that really made a significant difference to me was, one, it was non-denominational. And two, they had loads of students. And in the gallery up there, if anybody's been there, it's got a lovely gallery, I used to go and hide amongst the students in the gallery to kind of suss out what was going on. And uh, during that period of time, and Judy come with me, because she was searching as well, and Derek kind of, I don't know, nurtured us. Um, and it was really lovely. I mean, they were a lovely couple. Esther and I are still really good friends. Unfortunately, Derek um, passed away, God, it must be three years ago now. I don't know, I'm sure, I don't want to get in trouble with Esther, but. Yeah. And Derek, Derek was the best man at our wedding. So that was the influence. So. God sort of arranged it for me to, to have this friend come into my life who knew the Lord, and I was still asking the questions, but it was sort of extreme at that time because then I had money and had everything that the world was telling me I should be happy about, but I was still unhappy. And with Derek, he... Um, he nurtured that in me, and he, could see, he was one of those... He's like you. He's got that Barnabas spirit, an encourager. You know, if you said to him, yeah, I mean, when I said to him, yeah, I'll come from the New York Marathon, come on then, we're training on Tuesday. You know, that was kind of how he was. Great guy, and I do miss him. Um, really lovely chap. So God had arranged it that these people came into my life, and then I prayed one on the, uh, on the 1st of April, a bit 
fitting, really, if you think about it, because I'm a bit of a joker. <laughs> yeah. First of April, 1991, in my front room, my house then, um, I'd been given a little leaflet from uh, Jane Finch, another lovely friend, Mike and Jane Finch, who I'm seeing on the 20th, this Saturday. And she'd give me this little, little leaflet, and it had the sinner's prayer. And I thought, well, that's weird. So on the 1st of April, I thought... Is this what I do to become a Christian? So I said the prayer, but I said it every day for a week because I didn't think that there was enough, you know. So at the same time, Julie had become a Christian. Apart from me, we'd split up at that time. She'd gone to Milton Keynes, and she was reading a Bible, and uh, the Lord spoke to her. So we got saved separately about the same time. So we got back together again, and uh, then we went to a bar and said, would you marry us? We'd, well, no, no, we didn't. I beg your pardon. I got the chronology wrong. I said, actually, would you baptise us? Trevor Wardock was the assistant manager then, lovely chap. We're still mates. He said, um, OK, what's your relationship? I said, well, we're living together. And now I'm always accused of this. <laughs> I didn't actually ever ask Julie to marry me. In the office with Trevor Wardock, he said, what's your relationship? And I said... We're living together, but we are going to get married. <laughs> Julie looked at me <laughs> across the office, and he said, "Well, if you're go- if you're getting married, then put your spiritual money where your mouth is." Oh. And I said, "What to do? What?" He said, "Move out. You're living in the same house, aren't you?" I said, "Yeah, but we don't have to, you know, sleep together or anything." He said, "No, but your neighbours don't know that, do they? You see, so you're now professing Jesus Christ as your Lord." I went, "Yeah." So, well, you come out the same door with Judy every day. What's changed? Well, like I said, we've got four bedrooms. No, 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 he said. You've made the profession. You move out, and then we'll start talking about whether or not I'll baptise you. Well, we came out of the office. Judy was crying her eyes out. And, I, <laughs> and I'm going, well, we might as well do what he said. So that evening, I went down to see Derek in Brockenhurst mm-hmm. and said, Derek, you never guess what happened. Um, we made a profession of faith. We want to get baptised but Trevor said because he knew Trevor I said Trevor said um, I've got to move out and live separately and I was going bankrupt this time my whole, losing my business everything so I had no money and uh, I said where am I going to live he said well the flat above our house has just become available you can have it for as long as you like until you get married so I kind of laughed the first night I was there. I was looking at my situation. <laughs> uh, just a short period before, I'd been married to someone at the end of the same road in this posh bit of Brockenhurst <laughs> and paying through the, my nose about everything. And here I was 18 months later, <laughs> living in the same street for nothing. <laughs> and Trevor Wardock phoned up the next day because I phoned him and said, I've moved out. And he didn't believe me. And he said, well, where are you staying? I said, Derek Brown, you know him. And I was there the first evening, having a cup of tea by the Arga, and the phone rang, and it was Trevor. And he said, Derek, is it right that Mark Austin has moved out and he's living with you? He said, yeah, do you want to speak to him? <laughs> <laughs> so Derek told me the reason why the elders and everybody agreed at Baba to marry me and Julie was because of that. He said, that made such a difference that you immediately did what I asked you. And I thought, wow. And I didn't know how significant that was until I pastored the church myself. Mm. <laughs> so that was that. And we got saved. And um, going bankrupt, lost my business, lost my house, lost all my vehicles, lost everything. I went voluntarily bankrupt, incidentally, because I could just see the way things were going. In the end of the 80s, if you know, uh, you're thinking about inflation now. It was going up a quarter of a percent a week. And I had three mortgages. But people were going bankrupt on me who owed me lots of money. Sales were dropping. Overheads were going up. There was no way I could see the writing on the wall. So I thought, look, what do I do? The most honourable thing is go voluntary bankrupt. So I lost everything. But just to add a bit of colour to the story, I won't tell you much about it, but I'm going to just tell you the facts. I, I tried very hard to sell the factory nobody wanted at the end of the 80s 90s commercial buildings they didn't want them and i had a um uh, six seven thousand square feet in the middle of southampton for a sign company and uh, i couldn't sell the factory to clear my debts so i i got in touch with some really dodgy people this is before i was a christian really dodgy people in brighton 
and I met them and they said uh, one of them said you know this is fraud mate don't you <laughs> and I said well what do I have to do he said you pay me seven grand in 50 pound notes and I'll set it all up so what he did was he found a buyer for my factory for whatever price I wanted to ask he found a solicitor that was under his jurisdiction shall we put it that way and I presented that to the bank he said what do you do is you ask for a closed bridge for a month so I said, I'll get it. So I go to the bank to say to them, look, what we're going to do is I need money now, but I've sold my factory. There's this amount of equity in it. You're more than covered. I put the factory up as collateral. So, of course, what you do is you take the money from the bridge and then you wisp it away somewhere. And when the bank says, right, OK, where's your buyer? He falls out of bed. The solicitor said, well, there's nothing we can do. They say, oh, dear. Well, in that case, we'll have to take your factory for um, collateral, for the collateral, and we go, oh dear, yeah, all right then. <laughs> so I was in the middle of this fraudulent behaviour, mm. and I got saved. And the first thing the Holy Spirit convicted me of was that that mark is fraud. So I could hardly phone up these gangsters and say, well, I've just become a Christian, can I have my 7,000 quid back? So um, <laughs> I was in a bit of a dilemma. Anyway, you were in a pickle. A pickle. So, uh, but immediately I was arrested. Again, I have to be, because I think. I'm a chatterbox and I like to talk. I know when God's talking to me because of that. He speaks with just a few words because he can't get an edge, a word in edgeways. Mm. And I, I've learnt his voice through that, really. Hope FM, a voice for the community. Well, that's the eye of the storm there, uh, which is uh, pretty much musically sets out, you know, where you were really. So you're in this really mess. Yeah, you've got the you've got the boys who have helped you out, so, but you did get out, didn't you? <laughs> how did, how well, did it work out? I became a Christian, and I thought this is fraud. You know, I was obviously convicted by the Holy Spirit. Can't do it. So, um, cut a very long story short. Um, I suppose the Lord arranged it really, but. Um, there was a late frost and I'd already basically closed the business but didn't quite know whether it was completely finished we're still doing a little bit of work in the factory over the weekend I had a sunny flow system into my office separate loo and that and the pipe went above all the offices and it burst over the weekend when we came in on the Monday the whole thing was floating in about a foot of water all the fax machines were down and everything and I just went right that's it finish so paid the girls off and everything and then went through bankruptcy court, which was a fascinating story. We haven't probably got time to. Uh, paid what I could uh, towards the creditors and uh, and came out of it, if you like, thinking, oh, I'm cleansed. Somebody said, God unshackled you from the world, Mark. And I needed it, really. In your 40th year. Yeah. And quite frankly, I did need it because you get this image. We all do it, but we, I had an image of myself as a self-made man. And I remember that lovely anecdote about Winston Churchill when a sergeant came to him in his office to give him a telegram or something. And he said, what are you doing this weekend, sergeant? And he said, I'm going down to the West Country to my small holding. He said, oh, you've got a small holding, man of, of uh, land then, landed gentry. He said, oh, no. He said, I built it up. I suppose you'd call me a, a self-made man. And Winston Churchill's reply was, oh, you've just relieved the almighty God of a massive responsibility <laughs> so I think when men say I'm self-made that was my image of myself but being unshackled from it I realized that wasn't what defined me what defined me was now I connected to the love of God and I was accepted I was accepted with all my warts with all my weird ways and peculiar things and um, to, we went from that stage to Lanzarote on our honeymoon, drove in a little, little VW with all our worldly goods on the top, down through uh, France, through Spain to Cadiz, got a three-day ferry to Lanzarote because there was a buddy of mine who I used to be in business with, and he said, if everything goes pear-shaped for you ever, come and live down here and we could do some work together. Well, I thought, great. So we did. So we got married, and the following Monday or Tuesday, we got the ferry and then over through France, Spain. Cadiz, Lanzarote, and we met up with a Spanish um, 
pastor who'd come from Gran Canaria to plant an evangelical church. And uh, I met him by accident, really. Uh, well, I don't know, a godsident. Well, uh, to you it was an accident. Yeah, yeah well, but... I was very young in the faith. And, of course, I didn't know how things worked then, really, and saw this little poster that was half English, half Spanish about an evangelical church. So it was a meeting in a front room. So we went there, and we got completely engrossed in it. And I, I eventually... I mean, Pastor Santiago used to put um, tourist services on at different places, lo locations around the island at the weekend. And within five, six months of me being a Christian, he was asking me to preach. <laughs> and I refused. I said, no way. no way. Anyway, in the end, he told me, you're preaching it Sunday and that's it. So um, I didn't realize at that time, but AOG pastors in the canaries were one thing down from jesus you didn't you know didn't mess with them they say what you're going to do you're going to do it so um i i got into the the word and then i realized how little i knew well i will have to get you back because it's huge uh, uh i could do a program in your lanzarote experience yeah. because all of that in those early days eventually yeah. took you to moran's college and then of course you went back yeah. to lanzarote where yeah. you where you, where you pastored but i can play a bit of music from that time uh and this is uh in pasta verdes all oh, right in pastas verdes yeah well this is really based on the 23rd psalm so the, in Spanish, they're saying in pastor's word is in, in green pastures, me apacientas. That means you nourish me. Uh, and it's basically really about the... Uh, and I just remember the wonderful times of worship when we were first Christians, worshipping with Spanish believers and learning Spanish through the, through the music. Mm. Gorgeous. Oh, I, I love this song. I love it to bits. As you were listening to that track, uh, Mark was actually interpreting the words. Just give us a, a brief feel of what, what's been said. Well, in green pastures, you nourish me um, and you give me freedom. Uh, you give me, you are my all. You give me uh, the opportunity to adore you and to love you uh, and basically to call you. It's a love story to, to God and uh, just basically saying, Oh, the freedom you bring me has brought to my heart the opportunity to adore you and to love you. You're my, he says, Tu es mi Cristo, you're my Christ. Tu es mi dueño, you're my, my owner. Tu es mi, mi el Señor. Like el Señor in Spanish is the Lord. It's like the big mister. Mm. Uh, yeah. So beautiful love song to God. Mark, changing tack completely, you've you've got a passion for uh, sharing your story, sharing the gospel, you yeah. know, with, with people. And of course, on Saturday, you also have a passion because you're being moved as many of us has with the people uh, from Ukraine yeah. and all they've gone through. Now, you're putting a special event on yeah. uh, at the weekend. Tell us about that. Well, we were having a picnic with our church, CBC, at Moorlands, and I thought, I want to do something. That old frustration impetus i felt impotent sorry not to be able to what can i do lord with my gifts well i put on events all my life before i was a christian and since i've been a christian so i thought oh maybe i could do something here at moorlands have a family picnic and honor the ukrainian families local ukrainian families in support of them not just financially but in order, I've realised that since I've been doing the research locally, there are many different initiatives locally doing jobs, really good jobs from the churches and from others for Ukrainian people. And I wanted also an opportunity for them to come and those people who are organising, the, the movers and the shakers, to get an opportunity to network and help one another, come alongside one another. Because, you know, we have got, particularly Christians, we've got this attitude sometimes, my little programme, my focus, that's what I'm going to do. Great, I'm similar in the way that I try and focus, but I think sometimes we lack uh, the opportunities at least to be able to cross-pollinate and see how we can help one another. And, of course, a great opportunity for Ukrainian families to meet one another from different parts of this area 
and uh, that can be a strength in numbers and basically a family thing where lots of activities for the children bouncy castles and uh, treasure hunts and competitions and lots of little nonsensey things like that now this is open it's a free event it's free open, it's yeah. open to anyone but you particularly want people from the ukraine yeah so if you know somebody uh, uh you, you can bring them oh yeah. please yeah and whatever uh, maybe they're staying with you and your family because i know that many of you have given accommodation and so on to ukrainian people uh then do come along now it's, it all kicks off at nine o'clock on saturday no it doesn't no nine thirty. it it kicks off at one o'clock the program that you're looking at is the organization of it up until one o'clock oh but the, I see. sorry about that blair right so one o'clock it kicks off one o'clock for lunch having something to eat sit down have your picnic um there's going to be live music on fairly shortly after that uh, sir christopher chope i think is going to grace us with his presence i have um inquired at south today to see if they'd cover it i got quite monosyllabic answers from the the journalists there but hey who knows they're going to phone me two days before the event maybe tomorrow um and frankly everybody's welcome particularly i'd like to say the care families because they have something in common as well and anybody who'd like to bring their children along in a safe environment like i say live music bouncy castles we've got a jewelry store there my sister my older sister who currently is actually very very ill and uh, bless her you know she said could i do donate some of the jewelry she makes beautiful jewelry oh. so she's given me lots of jewelry to give yes. or sell away sell depending on whether you know people got any money it's not about the money that's part of it the big thing for me is the opportunity to network enjoy some live music uh, my band's having its debut my new band called the jubilees and we're being supported by um uh, a new band too called kingstone which are a kind of uh, well not reggae they are reggae but they do hip hop and grime and all sorts of things really uh, tasteful and really uh, colourful they're going to be with us so two bands Sir Christopher Chope um, Bouncy Castle Bouncy Castle food, we said food. that didn't we food. oh loads of food um, yeah we will be supplying food but please bring your own picnic um, the food is there if you want to make a donation great if not just enjoy sure. eating 20 burgers or whatever you want to do <laughs> So, um, yeah, that's it at Moreland's College. Uh, lots of lovely people there and uh, looking forward to meeting you. And please, Christians out there, pray for us. It doesn't rain. Now, well, actually, I did have a look at the weather forecast uh, for Saturday and it's not showing rain at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, of course, it's a wee bit unstable at the moment. But, but either way, you're going to have you're going to have fun. And I, I guess if it does rain, will you be able to go indoors? We've got a plan B. It won't be quite as good, though, I don't think. I'm, well, well, I'm holding out for Plan well, A with the Lord. We'll, yeah. just play, we'll just pray that Plan yeah. A is the, yeah. is the one uh, that, uh, yeah. you know, that, we, that we go with. Um, the, uh, uh, I, w I suppose at this point uh, we ought to play Hard Deep, The Father's Love, because in all of this, yeah. you know, of course, uh, you've come out from a dark place. And I guess that you're surprised yourself as you look back in your life what, what God has brought you through. Yeah, well, How Deep the Father's Love is very dear to me. It was the last song I sang with my daughter-in-law before she passed away, and it was one of her favourites, and we did it at her funeral. And it means so much to me because it's just about the Father heart of God. Relating to the Father heart of God has been always my struggle since I've been a Christian, and I can relate to Stuart Townend's words. And Well, it speaks for itself, doesn't it? It's beautiful. It does. Of course, the Stuart Tynan and Hardeep, the father's love. Well, it's been fantastic having you on the programme today. Don't forget about an amazing event on Saturday, kicking off at one o'clock, particularly for folk who are from the Ukraine. But, you know, so if you know folk, come along there. You can come along yourself and encourage folk. We want to go out of the programme, uh, though, with a very special orchestral piece. Uh, tell us what that is. Well, it's actually the solo. Yo-Yo um, Ma is one of my favourites. But, um, yeah, the cello really speaks to me t in many ways. But from my n limited knowledge of uh, Bach, he he can be very busy. But on the cello, you know, it's got that lovely feel like a human voice. I think it's the same register as a human voice. And uh, it just 
completes in such a beautiful way. Very short piece, but um, it always moves me when I hear it. Well, let's go out with it. And Mark, you'll have to come back and, and tell us some more, uh, particularly about your, your experiences in Spain, in Lanzarote. Thanks, Blair. Thanks for having me on the show. Hope FM, a voice for the community.